Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. I just felt like so self-conscious in my right. I couldn't write anymore because I felt like I was so aware of what everyone thought of me and I got the most extraordinary stage fright. And I just was like, right, I crisis time. Something has to change. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the electric Dolly Alterton. Dolly is a British journalist, author and podcaster, best known as co-host of the widely popular current affairs podcast, The High Low, and the author of the best-selling memoir, Everything I Know About Love. Now, Dolly is trying her hand at fiction on the cusp of releasing her very first novel, Ghosts. So, what does life look like for Dolly after more than half a million people have read about her life, both the good parts and the ugly, in her 20s? And why is she so determined at this point in her career to protect her private life? Dolly was about as generous as you would imagine, both with her time and her vulnerabilities, and this was far and away one of the easiest, most natural and genuine conversations we've had the pleasure of having on this podcast. We cannot wait for you to hear it. So here's Dolly. Dolly Alderton, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. We are thrilled about this. We had Pandora on the podcast earlier this year. That was a huge highlight. And now I feel like we are coming full circle to get you on as well. We told Pandora, but both of you are the reason we got into podcasting two years ago. You've been a huge inspiration to both of us. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Were you two friends before or did you become friends after you podcasted together? We were like, we were work friends. And then you naturally become much closer, I think, as you two would understand through this process, because there's nothing you can really fake on the mics. So we were work friends and now every type of friend, I guess, is what you'd call it. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what happened to Pandora and I. Yeah. Well, we start every podcast right now with asking, how the fuck are you doing? It is a weird time in the world. How are you coping with it all? 
sorry, should uh, make it clear to your listeners that the reason I sound like this is that I woke up about 15 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's 7pm on a Friday in Melbourne. I'm having a drink and Dolly's trying to open her eyes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think basically that tells you everything about how the fuck I am. I'm extraordinarily tired (laughs) at the moment just because I'm, I'm, the book's coming out next week. And yeah, I forgot what these campaigns are like. It's really exciting. It's really great. It's never something I'll complain about, but it does. It's uh, it's so in opposition to everything that you do when you write the book. You have like a year on your own where no one really emails you, where you're just like having conversations with yourself in your head with your characters. And then suddenly it's all systems go and you have to speak to a team of seven people practically throughout the day and then just talk yourself stupid like I just can't believe that I'm still talking I just I'm so (laughs) sick with my own voice woman what more have you got to fucking say apparently apparently lots we're gonna squeeze another like 45 minutes out of your words so good luck (laughs) hey Dolly this might be a particularly annoying question too given how busy you are but the next question we always ask everyone is what are you reading watching or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to somebody else it's not an annoying question it's one of my favorite questions so I just started listening to a new podcast last night called Titting About with French and Saunders. Do you know French and Saunders? No, I don't. They, they're these like beloved English comedians who are, it's two women, they're now, they're like best friends. They've been on our TV since they were in their 20s and they're now in their 60s, I think. And it's just really fun. Just like older dames being really silly and funny and not talking any nonsense. And it's, yeah, that's the new podcast I'm listening to that I'm loving. I am reading Juliet Naked by Nick Hornby because I'm going on a bit of a Nick Hornby odyssey at the moment. And I've just finished watching The Duchess, which is a Catherine Ryan show on Netflix. Ah. Talk to me about the Nick Hornby phrase because I actually just got his new book and I'm so excited to tuck into it. What do you like about his stuff? Oh, that's great, that book. It's just like you. Is that the one? Yeah. yeah. It, it, I just, I read a lot of him when I was a teenager and I thought that I loved him then. And I did, but I think one of the main reasons I loved him as a teenager is that I was at an all-girls school and there was swearing and sex in them. And it was about men and women living in cities. So I think I found it very sort of glamorous without understanding any of it. And now I'm going back to read it. And it's just, it's so truthful and searing his observations so get to the heart of things so quickly and his dialogue's really good I think his observations about men and women are spot on and they're just really really funny books I just roar through them I'm really really enjoying them Dolly you just touched on growing up and being a teenager then but we want to take you to before that what were you like as a kid what are the like standout memories of your childhood so weird. So I remember as a kid being quite precocious, quite loud, quite attention seeking. But I had a bit of a bit of a weird thing happen this year where I decided after the tapes had been sitting in my flat for like a decade, I decided to get all my VHS tapes from my childhood converted onto DVD and watch them all with my family. And it was one of the trippiest experiences of my life because what you have to do really when you watch them is face the reality of what 
your childhood was in these snippets versus the memories that you've relied on often which had just kind of passed down as mythology through your parents and actually what I found in all these videos was I was like a very weird kid like very quiet barely said a word just like huge buggy eyes staring out at the world absorbing everything a lot whirring around in the old noggin but very little coming out of my mouth so and I said to mama I was like was I just this creepy like ghost kid because that's what it looks like and I think I think I was but I mean I mean I definitely it's a cliche to say I remember that I loved the library and I loved books and I loved clothes and I loved potatoes. So basically all the defining characteristics of <laughs> who I am as a 32-year-old were the same when I was two. Were you always creative? Like you said just before that you loved books and you loved reading. Did that creativity manifest much when you were younger? Yes, I, I always was a very creative kid. I was always writing stories putting on little plays, performing, making things, painting. That that has always been how I express myself. I was amazed that I managed to pass my maths and science GCSEs. It was like such a triumph. I still think of that as the biggest triumph of my life because I was always just one of those children who it was really obvious what I was going to do and what I was going to succeed at and the extremity between how I did in basically two subjects which were English and drama versus the rest of my subjects which I did so badly in was enormous so it's actually it's quite hard to deal with a kid like that I think it's quite hard to like motivate a child like that and give them a sense of self-worth when all they can see is the evidence that they can do like one thing but obviously as an adult I'm now so thankful for that and actually I have friends who say to me like you're so lucky that you're so singular in your in your focus and your talent and what you want to do and actually it's like some of my closest friends are girls who who exceeded at like everything across the board at school they excelled and then they got into their 20s and they realized there were just like so many things they could do they could be a lawyer <laughs> they could so be a good everything <laughs> yeah they could be and I think that 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 kind of made them feel very lost and actually like the, the limitations of my skill set have really helped me in adulthood, I think. Mm. One of the standout takeaways I took from everything I know about love is when you spoke about actually being rejected from your dream course at your dream university. Mm. I want to talk to you about that sense of rejection or failure quite early on in life. You ended up going to Exeter and having a great time and like partying it up anyway. And obviously everything turned out okay in the end. But what do you think that rejection did to your sense of self and I guess your personal growth across your 20s? I think the reason why that was a bit of a jolt, that rejection, is because it made me realise the extent of the educational privileges that I had had. So I went to a private school and private schools are businesses. So you're a product that has to perform for them and I'm very cynical about private schooling which is very weird because I'm also incredibly grateful that my parents gave it to me and did that for me but I, I just I think that there there's no fair world in which I believe that they can exist and I think what I had learned through like okay the GCSE example is a great one it's the set of exams that we do when we're like 15 16 
that you work towards for two years in the UK. And I was so, so bad at maths, so bad at maths. And I just needed to get a C to be able to go to, I went to a different sixth form and I just needed to get a C to get to that sixth form. And because I was so bad at maths, my mum enrolled me in something called Kumon Maths, which is this like math school that I did after school. I did extra help with my teacher. My teacher, I was in a really small class. My teacher, you know, did everything she could to give me extra homework that would help me get my head around things. And basically, I think what I was conditioned to believe from then on in is like, if I really want want something that's difficult, my parents can throw a bit of money at the problem and people can throw their energy and focus at me. I can work really hard and then together we can get through it and I'll get what I want. And actually, that is an extraordinary privilege and fortune that 99.99999% of people don't have the luck of benefiting from. And I think like not getting into that university to do that course that I had just decided was what I was going to do, I think was the first time that I really was like given a bit of a shake and realized that private school and the benefits that I had of it was not necessarily how the real world worked, definitely not for others. And it probably wouldn't work like that for me in the future. Did you approach much of your 20s with any sense of strategy at all? Because I know it might sound like quite a serious question, but I mean, I know that you started writing your memoir in the middle of your 20s, I think. Mm. So did you enter your 20s thinking there are certain things I want to get done and certain places I want to kind of reach in my career? Yes, I was absolutely singular, focused, obsessed. I had incredibly specific ideas of what I wanted to do and a very specific time frame in which I wanted to do them. My friend Lauren actually found a Gmail chat. Do you remember G chat? <laughs> yes. It's the thing when like all my friends, when we graduated and started working in an office, when we just like had no idea what we were doing, would just sit on our emails chatting <laughs> all day because it was like a really easy way of quickly minimizing and it made it look like you were checking your emails if your boss came over and we'd just be sitting. Before the days about. of Slack. Yeah, before Slack, exactly. It would just be like us like talking about boys on our Gmail when we should have been <laughs> doing spreadsheets. but she found this like old gmail conversation with me when I was 24 and she in the in the messages she was asking me about reality tv at the time I was working as a reality tv producer and I think I'd been doing it for about a year and a half and I sent her this like it's it's just so embarrassing now to read it back as a 24 year old but I sent her this like plan I was like I've got an exit plan I've decided I need to be out of reality TV by the time I'm 25. So I have six months and this is how I've done. And in my head, I just like decided you've worked in reality TV for two years, 20, age 25, you need to be working in a different department of TV. So I always had these like very specific goals that no one sort of set for me other than myself that I pushed <laughs> on myself. And yeah, I'm glad that I was so kind of career obsessed during that time because in every other part of my life as well, my love life and my recreational life, we could say, things were pretty chaotic and things were pretty messy and things were pretty unnecessarily nutty during my 20s. And I'm always really grateful that I had this other thing to focus on, to be obsessed with, to get out of bed for and to to really fall in love with it was the thing that I thought about 
most in my 20s is still the thing I think about most is my job is my job and yeah had I not had that I think there is a very there's very different 20s that I potentially could have lived where I didn't really leave my bed and just got stoned every day (laughs) I think so many of us in our 20s see our birthdays as like deadlines that before the next birthday I have to achieve xyz otherwise I'm falling behind or I'm not I guess, keeping up with the ideal that I had in my mind of what my 20s are going to look like. Do you still yeah. see your birthdays as that kind of like milestone or deadline in your head? Yeah. And interestingly, I think it's because as well, my birthday's the last day of the summer. My birthday's August 31st. So in my head, I always think is the year beginning in September because I'm very babyish. So I'll always think of the new year being the academic year, the back to school year. And interestingly, so Ghosts begins and ends with the birthday of my protagonist. And the pilot script for everything I know about love begins with her 24th birthday. And I hadn't realised it until I was rereading that script the other day. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting that this is something that feels like such a like, narrative point of change for me, for characters, the, the dawn of the new year or an ending of new year and actually the series outline for everything I know about love ends at her 25th birthday so it's obviously something that I'm completely fixated on and Caroline O'Donoghue who's a great friend of mine and a brilliant author her first book about a young woman called Promising Young Women she was like what is it with us with the birthdays because that begins with her on a birthday so I think it is quite a female thing and I, I wonder if it's about I think women in their 20s and 30s are forced to be more aware of time passing than men are and I also think women don't have like an enormously rich work history collectively because we're only really allowed to go to work you know post-war really so I think that we we have this sense of not losing the mic and time running out and making you Mm. know optimizing opportunities because we have so far we have lots to catch up on. So I think maybe that's sort of sunk into us as well. So many people will have known you initially from your dating column and then, of course, your best-selling memoir about love. And I think that love is a pretty spectacularly intimate thing to become well-known for writing about. Like what is it about love that you're so drawn to? I mean, your newest book focuses on love in some aspects too, that you've, mm. you've almost accidentally crafted a whole career around it. Yeah, that's such a good question. No one's asked me that before. I, I mean, I'm really interested in relationships. I think it's as simple as that. I remember years ago listening to a psychologist give a lecture and she said time and time again when we research what happiness, what the quantifiers of happiness are definitively, what makes a human happy, the thing that comes up over and over and over again as the number one reason is the quality of their personal relationships. It's as simple as that. The happiness you feel is a reflection of the people that you choose to love and who love you. Not necessarily romantic love, but, you know, what does that mean? What that means is feeling known, feeling understood, feeling connected, feeling like you share experiences, feeling like you share a worldview. This is not just the way we spend our time. This is the thing that forms us and as psychologists would argue, it's the thing that dictates our our very mood, our interior life. So that's got to be interesting. You know, I think that's the that's the thing that I do that yeah, I will always be most drawn to. Yeah, I think it's the thing I will be writing about forever. 
Coming up after the break, making the personal sacred. But first a word from today's sponsor. Zara, doing this interview with a guest from London is making me think about those trips we had booked to enjoy the European summer of 2020 in our mid-year break. Clearly, those trips did not happen, but this summer in Australia, we will be grabbing ourselves a Summersby, closing our eyes and pretending to be over there anyway. We certainly will. I'll be having a Summersby rosé in one hand, a book in the other, and let my imagination transport me to Europe because it might be a while, Mish, till we can make it over there. Unfortunately, this Summersby sparkling selections range includes a spritz and a rosé flavour, both intensely sparkling and refreshing beverages with great roundness of bitterness, sweetness and crisp notes. Rosé and spritz are two quintessential warm weather drinks and thanks to Summersby Sparkling Selections, we can achieve that European summer holiday magic right here in Australia. My favourite Summersby beverage from this new range is their Sparkling Spritz. It is inspired by the same flavour profile as an orange spritz, which is very sophisticated and oh so Europe, especially paired with some orange zest and a wine glass over ice. The Summersby Sparkling Selection bottles are available at BWS, First Choice Liquor, Dan Murphy's and Liquorland or head to summersby.com to find out more. Thank you so much to Summersby Sparkling Selections for making this episode of Shameless Possible. Dolly, everything I know about love has sold almost half a million copies. In a recent interview with Vogue, you said, a lot of everything I know about love was things I found upsetting. And then for two years, I had to talk about them constantly. All those personal experiences were cashed in on, criticized and analyzed. With hindsight, do you regret sharing anything about your 20s? I mean, it's so common for women in the public eye to share a lot about their personal lives and to feel like they want to connect with people. And I know Zara and I have shared a lot with our audience, like personal traumas and things that have happened in our lives that we haven't even really told our parents about. And part of me as I get older, part of me regrets it a little bit. And I want to know, have you regretted it now that you've reached your 30s? Can I ask how old both of you are? 26. 26. Yeah. So, So 26 was the age that I started that dating column. And there's a writer in the UK called Annie Lord who writes a beautiful dating column for Vogue that is very intimate and she I've found out she's 26 it makes so much sense to me that it sounds incredibly patronizing I don't mean it to what I mean is no it doesn't not at all I think there's a period of a person's life where that kind of sharing is radical and it's exciting and cathartic and helpful to others as well as yourself And I think it's a massive disservice to your younger self to place shame on them to counter your regret when that 26-year-old self felt no shame about what she was doing. That's what I think is really complicated. Now, do I regret the fact that every embarrassing thing that I did in my 20s, every dysfunction that I worked through with my therapist on the whole is documented in a book that half a million people have read and that is readily available for anyone in the world to go and buy from a corner from a shop around the corner from them. Yeah, it fills me with terror. It makes me feel really exposed. It has at points in the last couple of years made me feel incredibly vulnerable. 
ironically, it's made me feel quite misunderstood at points. It's definitely been a huge hindrance on forming romantic relationships with people now. So that that's a lot of reason to regret. However, if I went back to, so that book was published when I was like 28, but I started like writing it when I was like 25, 26. If I went back to that woman and said, okay, you're going to write this book. This is how it's going to sell. This is how lots of women are going to connect to it. These are the amazing women that you're going to meet from all around the world, indeed, because they have read your book and connected with it. This is what it's going to give to your life. This is how it's going to change your career. This is how it's going to make you feel overwhelmingly understood, like understood and known and and appreciated. So that's all the good stuff, but it's going to make you feel a little bit vulnerable and embarrassed and it might affect your love life as you get older. I think that that 25-year-old would be like, fucking suck it up bitch (laughs) grow a pair I really do have that conversation with that girl in her 20s and I can hear her say to me like don't shame me for this I want to do it if you're having issue with it now as a 32 year old that's your problem that you need to sort out it's not my mistake that you're having to deal with now like we just are different people and we've grown up so like you work out the things about being a 32 year old woman and where you are in your life now that that might feel like it's incongruous to who you are now and how you write and how you live your life but like don't blame me for that (laughs) that's how I feel about it I'm in constant conversation between those two versions of myself because I think it would just be so easy to say yeah I regret it that girl was an idiot because that's you know or that she was taking advantage of or she was trying to make money or she was trying to cash in on something that's not true that book was really thoughtfully thoughtfully constructed and it overwhelmingly has changed my life for the better so that's just something that notion of regret is something I'm just going to be in conversation with I think forever and I think all women who write or share things in their younger life will have that and you know what? I'm sure 42 year old me will have some things to say to 32 year old me about about the, mis- about the mistakes I'm making now. So I think that's just the cost of living, isn't it? <laughs> you said a couple of things that you said that in a huge way, in an overwhelming way, that writing this book helped you feel more understood. But you also said that writing this book meant that you felt that there were some things that you were misunderstood for. Yeah. What did you mean by that? In what way did you feel like you were misunderstood? Well, you just, you can't control people's interpretations of your work once it's out in the world that's the deal of being an artist and if you're if you're writing or making work to try and control a version of the world that's going to be a really horrible career because you're not going to succeed when you write it's and publish something it's not an act of control it's actually an act of surrender and an act of great vulnerability to know that people are going to attach their own meaning onto the words that you've written that could be absolutely the opposite of what you intended and that is their absolute human right that is the art form of reading you it's a creative act you bring yourself and your own experience and your own politics to to every word what becomes complicated is when those words weren't made up and when those people weren't fictional those those words and those experiences happened in real life 
and those people were all real and the protagonist was me so when people would attach their own you know ideology about the world or opinions about people like me or women like me to my experience again that is completely their right that's what reading is all about it was just it was just pretty hard going for me sometimes it's just quite full-on but that's the deal (laughs) you know so it's Mm. fine I just think I I wasn't expecting it I think I just wasn't expecting it and I certainly I think I was expecting it to a degree but because the book was read by so many more people than I thought it would be I wasn't expecting it to be for it to feel so loud the noise of it even though Mm. in in context it was still it was still like very manageable in terms of looking at the the sort of percentages of how many people was were being like that as opposed to being either positive or, or 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 being negative but in a way that it wasn't deeply personal but just as the kind of readership of it grew that voice grew as well and yeah that that was just just a bit sticky. Mm. You spoke earlier about kind of having conversations with your past self and your future self I want to know what kind of conversations have you had with yourself about protecting or fencing off some parts of your life and being more private I mean so many people would be interested in like things like your dating life or your love life now how do you fence those things off and keep them sacred to just you well I just didn't have a choice because I just went so mad after everything I know about love came out (laughs) it was like so great and I was like on such a high and it was so brilliant and then it just became so difficult and this was all my own doing because I was the one who chose to write something that intimate and I think it I just had I just felt like that job was going to make me go mad and I love my job more than anything it's like my most sacred commodity in my life really I know that might sound sad to some people but like I've really plowed a huge amount of time and love and thought and effort and life into this thing and I want it to be my focus until my dying day I want to be doing this until I'm like a little old lady and I think what what scared me about a year and a half year maybe after the book came out after everything about love came out is I just had a really bad episode where I just I just felt like so self-conscious in my right I couldn't write anymore because I felt like I was so aware of what everyone thought of me and how potentially like everything I wrote I was like oh well what are all these different tribes of people going to attach to me saying this it just like I got the most extraordinary stage fright I was really overworked I wasn't I I wasn't looking after myself I just got to a really bad point with it all and I just was like right I like crisis time something has to change because I I don't I want to carry on doing this forever and at the moment I'm going to be someone who goes mad and I don't I don't want this job to make me go mad so frankly I just went back into therapy and it was something I worked out with therapist. It was just, it was really mania. I went back into therapy to just deal with my job. And it was like, right, okay, things have to, things have to change. And here are the ways that you can do this job safely. And one of the number one things was speaking about my private life or using my private life transparently for my work no longer served me. That was no longer an option. It had worked until now, but it wouldn't work going forward and that was difficult as well because I'm just so used to that being how I how I kind of process life and how I get material so then I just had to make loads of tiny decisions to protect myself 
like teeny tiny decisions that have now been in place for a year over a year which is you know not really using social media that much definitely not googling my name not going looking for any bad things about me that I know exist on the internet not talking about my personal life on my podcast doing an agony aunt column so I don't have to write anything about my personal life writing fiction writing scripts these are all like very strategic decisions that I made to be able to get into the next phase of my career in like a healthy and productive way and interestingly Michelle you saying that thing about sanctity I listened to an interview with Elizabeth Gilbert who I love and I'm also obviously really fascinated with her because her journey initially was writing a book in which she shared the most intimate and personal things about her life and then she transitioned into a different type of career and mm. when I when I oh well, it wasn't when I interviewed her <laughs> when I interviewed her it <laughs> this is what happens when you listen to so many podcasts I'm like no I didn't interview her. <laughs> she wasn't talking to me in my <laughs> she was talking to another person sorry I had interviewed her that's why I was thinking it was that interview it wasn't sorry <laughs> it's all very meta anyway given we're on a podcast and we're listening to this thinking that you're talking to them as well <laughs> yeah. god how embarrassing no I was listening to an interview with her I can't I can't remember exactly what interview I'm so obsessed with her I basically like once a month just put her name into the podcast store and she said <laughs> that she met a, a man who's an expert in sanctity in sacred holy objects and she said to him what do you have to do to make something sacred he said you put it in the middle of a space you draw a circle around it and then you say everything inside here is sacred that's that's how you make something sacred and I remember listening to that in an interview and just bursting into tears and I was like and he draw a circle and he draw a circle around me, around my work, around my family, around everything like that. Mm. No one's going to do that. No one's going to make this sacred other than me. So I have to be the one that that now sanctifies myself, basically. God, that sounds mad. I sound like <laughs> such a hippie. But it's, a, it's an important, we all should, we all should be doing that. No one's going to make something precious and safe and something to urgently be guarded other than us. It's very beautiful to think about. I think that will stick with me and Mish for a while now too. But one thing that we really wanted to ask you coming into this chat is because we had Pandora on this podcast a couple of months ago, we asked her what she loves about you and why she loves working with you. And she said, I love getting advice from her. You know, she's one of the first people I turn to for advice and I find her very inspiring and she moves me. And I also think she's completely ridiculous a lot of the time. Aww. We thought it was probably only fair to ask you the same. Yeah, what is so special about your relationship with Pandora? So Pandora's an extraordinary person in that she has this absolute pledge to living an honest life in a way that she does it very quietly and it's it's a thing about her that I think most people don't know and I would love people to know about her that she she has such a sense of integrity she's always checking with herself that what she believed truly in her heart is aligning with her actions which means she can be very hard on herself actually because she she never she never wants to do anything that feels disingenuous or that feels fake. This is like a very, very weird fact about her. I don't think I've ever heard Pandora slag anyone off, ever. This is oh, how my now. God, that is, that she is so rare. That's impressive. She doesn't bitch about people. She's If we're working with a company and they've pissed us off, all I want to do 
is go, that sounds great. Thanks, guys. And then immediately go into Pandora's garden with a cup of tea and a fag and just fucking rant about it for half an hour. <laughs> that's how I work. I'm so fake. Like that's, <laughs> I just like, I like an easy life and I love complaining about things. So like, I love just being like, yeah, things are great to people's faces. And then just like really going in on them. <laughs> with yes. Pandora won't have any of it. She's like, if we're unhappy, if you're unhappy with the company, then we need to ring them now and you need to tell them why. We're not going to sit here and, you know, it's great. It's really good. She's really like, help me connect with, with an eye, with a sense of just like truth and righteousness. And it's like such a, such a rare thing in a person. And she, yeah, she, she doesn't have any interest. She hates bitching about people. She hates being nasty about people. She's very like childlike, I think, in her heart. Like she's very, sweet and quite pure and like even being in proximity of people having like a gossip makes her feel quite anxious even if it's like she's not even a part of it even if it's about someone she doesn't even know she just doesn't like the idea of like someone moving through the world not being aware that people are like being really nasty about them so she's like a really like morally quite straightforward person in a way that most grown-ups aren't it is kind of like hanging out with a child in that respect in the most beautiful way (laughs) that she just will say what she feels. And yeah, I've never encountered that in an adult before. And it's like such a beautiful quality about her. And it makes me feel like very protective of her, obviously, because like that's something that like could easily be taken advantage of, I think. And she's just really helped me like work out what it is that I want and how to be honest about it with people and not feel, feel like embarrassed about that. And she's, really helped me like curb some of my like people pleasing and she's the best you once told the guardian that you find comparisons between female writers and authors quite frustrating you told the journalist this girl is the new lena dunham and now it's this girl is the new phoebe Waller-Bridge. it is sexist overtones having got their head around one woman people can't be bothered understanding others now that you have ventured into fiction are you worried that reviews are going to say things like Dolly Alderton is the next Leanne Moriarty or Dolly Alderton is the next Marion Keys? No, I'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, your I think opinions are always in flux and that's like hearing me say that in an interview, I'm like, oh, stop complaining about it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I do agree with past <laughs> me. <laughs> I do agree with, you know, it, it's annoying. It's annoying generally. It's an it's an annoying indicator of like generalized sexism. That mm-hmm. yeah, exactly as I said. That like you can't. It's almost like a. It's like we can't be bothered to understand a new woman and her work. So instead, we have to just like default to a woman's work that we already know, and we'll just say it's like a different, like a, a slightly different flavor of that. That is Mm. annoying, but equally like, you know, it's nice to be, it's nice to be compared to anyone, really. I think uh, other female writers, that's something I'm like always really chuffed about. I don't know if they feel the same. I don't know if they're being compared to me, (laughs) (laughs) but I like being compared to them. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I listen to myself saying that and I think that sounds quite ungrateful. I just think like, on a personal level now, I just think I'm really, I'm really glad that people know who my, who I am and what my work is at all and that I get to make a living out of this. So yeah, I, I don't mind being compared to other women. The thing about everything I know about love is, I mean, I can't remember a book in the last sort of five or so years that 
in kind of my demo, our demo anyway, that was just like so widely recommended to friends. It was one of the only books I've ever packaged up and sent to my best friend who's in London because she's just not a reader. Like I'd never done that before, but I thought like this is the kind of book that she needs to read. And I mean, it won a National Book Award. It was nominated for the Waterstones Book of the Year and a British Book Award as we said, has been sold a stupid amount of times and is translated into 25 languages. You're talking to us now, of course, because Ghosts is coming out in a week or two in Australia, and I want to know how you feel backing up a work like that with something entirely different. Really excited. Yeah, really excited. And going back to Elizabeth Gilbert, and she did say this when I interviewed her. This was not me thinking I interviewed her when I was actually just in the bath listening to her. She said to me <laughs> when she was going from memoir to writing fiction for the first time, she was like, I just had to, it's like I was appreciative of that huge audience. I respected them. I had a huge amount of love for them, but I had to forget them when I wrote my second book. I couldn't write for them because that would be a bad piece of work for me and that would be a bad piece of work for them. So I am really grateful I had that chat with her before I started. Obviously, her book you're talking about on like stratospheric different scales, so I can't even imagine what that pressure is. But I think I had to, I had to just accept that I was trying to move into a different realm. I might I might not do it as well as the first one, commercially well as the first one. I might lose some followers. I might lose some numbers. I might lose some some of that like fun extra capital that I got with the first book that I never expected. But that's okay because I was never expecting it. I never went into this job for the numbers. I never went into this job to be in a bestseller list or to make a certain amount of money or to have a certain number of readers. I went into this job so I can make my living out of writing and so I can have books that I can hold in my hand and see on the Waterstones bookshelf. Like that's that's the thing that thrills me. And, and yeah, that's what I've just got to keep working at. And it might be that my biggest book was the book I wrote when I was 28. And like, wow, how amazing is that? So that's that's fine if that's the case. As long as I get to keep writing, I'm happy. Hmm. It must have been incredibly freeing to kind of create a whole other universe as well, I imagine. Did you love the creative process of writing fiction? Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. It was so different to writing a memoir, which was, you know, quite an emotional slog. Whereas writing fiction was just, yeah, it was just such a treat to go into a different world and inhabit the heads of different people other than my own every day. It was the funnest experience. I would, if I could go back to this time last year, I mean, I think everyone right now (laughs) in 2020, October feels like I would do anything to go back to this time. But if I go back to the time last year when I just first started writing, I'd stopped planning it, I'd started writing it at that point. It was the happiest period of my life. I want to know, and we ask everybody this question, and it sounds a little strange, but I find it quite inspiring hearing what people have to say. What do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> That's such a good question. Quite um, morbid, but a good question. <laughs> no, I obviously think about this stuff like every single day in the shower when I'm washing my hair. I think about death and what's gonna what's gonna happen when I'm not here and how people are gonna speak about me. Do you know I had something weird? So since I've, I'm, I left Twitter in May, and all my tweets now are done by a friend of mine who has all my passwords. And occasionally, since the book has been out, sorry, as the campaign has been started, the book's out next week. I search my handle I'll, I'll just go onto Twitter because I can't access it so I just search my name in the search bar and see what comes up and 
hardly anyone tweets me anymore. It's really interesting because I'm not there. People have forgotten that I'm there, that I exist. And I always thought that that would make me feel panicked and it didn't. It made me feel absolutely serene. My friend Caroline O'Donoghue, this brilliant writer, she said to me, she had left Twitter for a bit as well and she said she did the same. She was like, isn't it the closest insight that we will get into what it will be like when we're dead? It's just like, you put your name in, you're not there and no one's talking about you because you're not there. And all it feels is like freedom. It's like the absence of you being in the world, even though it's, that's obviously like the virtual world. Totally. It doesn't, you're not, it doesn't feel like you're missing out. It feels like, yeah, dark, peaceful freedom that you're not there. So anyway, sorry, that's just a nice death, you know? My <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I think, oh, it's such an interesting question. I think the problem is I'm so in a period of my life where I'm so work focused. So when I think about like, what do I want my legacy to be? I want it to be like that I made work that made people laugh and that connected to their experiences and reflected their relationships and their emotional life. But really what I should want my legacy to be is that I was a good friend. That really is what I like. That's the thing that really matters. I think I really, really do believe that, that I was like loving and, kind to people in my life that's what I would like to be that's what I'd like my legacy to be however if it's like win the booker prize or not be known and be known for being a shit friend I think I'd take I don't care about the second one (laughs) (laughs) the booker prize it is I love it Dolly our final question for you it'll probably tie into the answer you just gave us but we ask this to everyone we finish every interview with the same question what is success to you how do you define success in your own life Success is twofold for me. It is making work that reflects who I am at that time and how I see the world at that time that I am proud that my name is on, that has a a space in the world, that exists in the world. doesn't matter whether it's with lots of readers or lots of viewers, as long as there is some sort of recipient. And then the second prong of success, which is less exciting, is having enough money in my account to pay my bills and having enough savings in my savings account to always be able to help someone I love out if there's a disaster. That, that's all like that's success for me. That makes me feel comfortable. Dolly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for all the work that you do for women like Mish and I. This has felt very much like Friday night therapy, I have to say. (laughs) I feel very, very comforted and warm after having this conversation. So thank you so, so much. Thanks for waking up for us. No, thank you. You're a huge reason that we got into podcasting in the first place. So you had a big impact on Zara and I, even if we hadn't met before today. So we are huge fans of yours. We hope everyone goes out and buys your new book, Go because I can't wait to read it. It arrived at my doorstep today and I can't wait to oh, talk good. It to and see what you've done. Good. Thank you so much, guys. I love that conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the wonderful Dolly Alderton. If you want more from Dolly, please do order her debut fiction novel, Ghosts. It hits Australian bookshelves next week, but you can order it now via the link in our show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, we also recommend you listen to our chat with Dolly's high-load podcast co-host Pandora Sykes 
You will find a link to that one in our show notes too. As for us, well, we're an independent pop culture podcast run by young women out of Melbourne. The best way to support the show is to either click follow on your Spotify account or to follow us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. That is all from us, guys. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.